Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is where comics and social movements meet. And this is a comics podcast with a television problem. This is your host, Elon Levin. And this is a podcast that knows all too well that the price of getting what you want is getting what you once wanted. Because that's right, there's a TV series about the Sandman right now on Netflix, and you can watch it. But should you? I had to throw in a quote from Sandman. I'm delving into that desire and that delirium tonight with two fabulous guests who love the comics. And, well, you know, let's see what we all think about the show. Uh, I know not everybody has had a chance to see the series yet, and we wanted to give you guys a bit of a spoiler-free thought about the show uh, before we get into the more in-depth conversation. And joining me throughout are Apollo Gonzalez. Apollo is a digital strategist who advises progressive advocacy campaigns on engaging and mobilizing their communities. He sits on the board of Climate Access, a nonprofit focused on building political and public support for climate and clean energy solutions, and IOBI, in our Backyards, a nonprofit crowdfunding platform whose mission is funding community-led projects. Apollo also holds public office and serves on city council in the small Texas town of Brookside Village. Welcome to the show, Apollo. Hey, thanks for having me. I was so glad to be able to make this happen. I had a feeling with the vast popularity of Sandman that there would be some folks who I knew from my organizing world who would have a strong attachment to the comics series and might be interested in checking out the show, too. Yeah, it kind of feels like a, a common thread um, across most of the folks that I've met in the space, which is interesting in itself. Also joining me is Ben Kahn. Ben is a GLAAD award-nominated writer of comics and novels. You can check out their comics, including the GLAAD-nominated graphic novel Renegade Rule, which we talked about on my podcast, and soon to be the re-released in bookstores Heavenly Blues, which is also excellent, and we have also talked about on my podcast. Their debut novel, Ellie Campbell Saves Their Saturday, will be out from Scholastic in the fall in 2023. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Ah, thank you so much for having me for this one. I am very glad to be here and talking about Sandman. You know, there's just so many, I like, I knew you'd want to. So I reached out to you. I'm like, I know you have Sandman feelings. Oh, um, most definitely. Comics writer, has lots of dramatic black clothing, always wants to talk about non-binary representation. It's kind of spooky. Yeah, I think there's a Sandman assumption I can make about your interests. So I, I think that's a fair assumption you made. So Apollo, uh, tell me, like, you, how did you get into the series? And, what did it, and by the series, in this case, I'm talking about the comics. And what did it mean to you growing up? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, uh, grew up in a very, uh, Christian evangelical church, um, where we were really not allowed to read anything but the Bible. <laughs> so, uh, I started to have this sort of moving away from religious texts, um, my sophomore year of high school, um, and was really sort of starting to explore comics and music and um, I think what my, my parents would call sort of secular uh, popular culture. Um, and in the mm. junior, I guess my junior year in high school, um, I was at uh, my local comic shop, which I started to frequent. And, and there was this amazing Dave McKeon cover um, of this new title called The Sandman. Um, and I, I picked it up and was just uh, instantly um, enthralled um, over the next several years it just really felt like it opened a lot of doors to um music and literature in a way yes. that i was really ready for at that time uh, yeah so I was, that was the beginning of the journey for me i hosted a panel at new york comic-con a few years back that was about how salmon got me into it how comics are a gateway drug to other forms of art and media and 
yeah, I know for me, like Salmon introduced me to a lot of other books and musicians, and, and I'm not surprised that it had that role for you as well. Is there a particular artist or book that it got you interested in? Well, I mean, just to just moving into a, a whole host of um, different genres from, you know, from the, my first reading of H.P. Lovecraft to Ray Bradbury to, um, you know, digging into mythology, the idea, you know, growing up, the idea of there being other gods, let alone a pantheon of gods, uh, was not really something that was acceptable in the household. So, you know, it, it, in Gaiman's writing, he mentioned so many names of, of, um, of gods and, and other beings, uh, that just really, I think were so new to me. And at the time we, you know, we didn't have the internet. We were, yeah, I, I was going to the library and digging through tomes of books, uh, to find the backstories of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these names. Uh, but then, you know, music, I mean, hell, uh, my, my first listening to Tori Amos was because of this her <laughs> connection to, uh, to Gaiman and that opened a whole other world um, of its own. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Ben, how, how did you get into Sandman? Uh, so yeah, so I started really reading comics and getting deep into comics when I started college. Uh, and that was about 2009. And really one of my big introductions, kind of just the way I dove in feet first was with a lot of the Vertigo classics. So a lot of those early years were spent reading Watchmen, Why the Last Man, Preacher, 100 Bullets, and you know, a little Transmetropolitan. And of course, uh, Sandman, which honestly always felt the most special. As much as I loved all his comics, like Sandman was just something else, something above all of the others. And no, hell, I remember uh, the booth I was in in the Chinese restaurant in Philadelphia. I was in uh, reading Sandman, reading volume five, when I first had the thought, like, uh, wondering if I could be a comic writer if I can make something like this. And I've pretty much spent the past rest of my life since trying to figure that out. So this was really the book that made me want to be a comic writer was Sandman. So a book I haven't had the chance to revisit in quite some time, but a book that uh, is incredibly um, special and important to me and placed on an incredibly high pedestal. I got into this series, uh, it must have been 1995, maybe. And I, um, I was at a vintage store in Charlottesville where I was for writing camp, not writing camp, writing. And, um, there was a vintage store. I got like a really, really important shirt in my life. And I also got a very important comic, which is a random one-off issue of Sandman, which at that point, the issue was, it was somebody had been clearly was like reselling their collection back to the store because it was from a couple of years earlier and it was you know like how we all used to read comics was random issues not even runs or compilations of any kind and i they, i was attracted by the dave mckeenan cover which i just was like this is the most gorgeous goth thing in the world and i found it right when i was first getting into the goth scene as a teenager and it really was such a central part of me developing my aesthetic and interest in that subculture in particular um and really revitalizing my interest in comics uh, I think it was probably the first comic I read that wasn't like a Marvel superhero comic, really. Yeah, I think, you know, that was a big part of it for me as well was this, um, you know, I, I'd spent, I'd probably been reading comics for about a year and a lot of what I was reading at the time were, you know, X-Men episodes and um, some of the other DC, uh, some of the other DC comics, uh, Batman and um, 
I'm not sure if Frank Miller's works were out at that time or not, but you know, my connection mm-hmm. to comics at that yeah. time was very much this sort of superhero, um, the superhero genre. And this just felt so, I just felt like such a departure. Um, and, and, um, I, 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 I hesitate to say, um, intellectual, it felt more, uh, literary, I guess, mm. uh, in a way, um, that sort of challenged me to think a little bit differently about, uh, storytelling. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was just such a, I don't know. It just felt so new. This was the beginning of DC's Vertigo imprint too, wasn't it? I, th- I think this was like yeah, outset was, when they were doing books of magic and a couple of other titles. It really helped make the make the uh, the line become what it became. Yeah. I mean, there were some of the there were titles that predated it that didn't have the same sort of logo and branding, but it, it very much set. It was like a certain era of comics, and it was it was sort of like the goth era of comics. And you know, for all the ups and downs of the series, I mean, I can't deny its importance in my life, especially as someone who spent a good amount of time in that in that subculture. And, you know, for a lot of us also, it was the first place we saw queer characters in a comic book that were, it wasn't just subtextually so the way it was for basically all the members of the X-Men. Um, and I think that, you know, it's impossible for me, it's impossible for a lot of people to, like, look at the series without that without that context. So I definitely, you know, for folks who are interested in getting into the comics now, like, well, one, you don't need to read the comics to watch the show. I I would have been shocked had a new TV series came into existence and where that was true. And this certainly is the case here. You do not need to wa- read the comics to watch the show. I have not done a full reread of the series. I've reread bits and, and pieces. I'm not going to tell somebody, oh, my gosh, you need to read this. You know, there are all kinds of reasons that someone might not want to um, that are very legitimate, but it's it's still a really significant piece of art in the history of the medium. And that's just undeniable. And uh, especially if you are interested in horror, when it came to, you know, doing a TV series of it, the media has kept threatening with to release various interpretations of the series over the years, um, there was going to be a movie. I don't remember at some point they're like, oh, Terry Gilliam, or they just say Terry Gilliam for literally any creative project. Uh, I almost didn't believe it when they, I heard there really was going to be a TV series, but um, I'm someone who never really felt like there needed to be an adaptation. I, it feels like Sandman is an unadaptable comic series to me. And I, I'd actually felt going into it, like, I kind of hope they don't make this. And then, you know, when you started to see the casting, well, one, a surefire way to get me enthusiastic about an adaptation is to make it more diverse than it originally was and to have angry white men be angry about that. And I, even so, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to see an adaptation of the show. But as we got as we got closer to the time of its launch, the more I was kind of just in, intrigued at seeing if they could do this, if it was worth it. And, you know, I still believe that, like, there are tons of pieces of comics art out there that should not be adapted. But it's an interesting question. Does an adaptation of Sandman for the TV screen make sense? Um, and I feel that that conversation is one that we're going to have a bit behind the veil of spoilers. So before we get to that, I wanted to pose the question spoiler-free to our listeners of like just the spoiler-free take from you guys on did you enjoy the show and do you think people who have read the comics might want to check it out or we were going to have to guess a little bit about whether non-comics readers would be interested but what are your thoughts on who should watch it if it's worth checking out ben oh i definitely think it's worth checking out um i would definitely recommend fans of the comic like great way to revisit 
the world and the characters and the story. It's definitely given the awe and the majesty and the wonder that narrative demands. And if you're new, it's going to be a dark, like gothic, epic, mind-bending fantasy that's going to be totally unlike anything you've seen before. And you're in for like a real moody, emotional adventure. Or mm. not, maybe a not quite adventure, but experience. Even yeah. though, and we'll talk about this, this show definitely adds a lot of stuff to try to create a more cohesive and maybe cinematic structure to it than mm. the comic has. Because the comic is a, is is so much a comic. Like it's using the comics medium and format in a very sequential episodic way that if the series was really going to try to keep to that, it, it would have to be like Star Trek series, you know, Star Trek season. Yeah, like it's there... It, the changes it makes are things to give it more of a structure over a season versus thinking purely issue to issue because this is the era before even the trade paperback collected edition. Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't... Um, and I know there's going to be fans out there who feel so tightly and so strongly to the source material that like anything outside of a one-to-one -one is going to be hard to stomach. But... You know, this kind. This is a comic that you kind of can't adapt one to one, if only because it's going to be real weird to just have Martian Manhunters show up for five <laughs> minutes. I did love that moment from the comic, though. That is something that worked well in the comic, and that I think would have been bad in a show. And so I'm glad that this exists in its own world for the TV show, and I'm glad that it existed in the shared universe for the comics page. You know, yeah, like great for the comic, especially before Vertigo, and there's a clear delineation between what is what. Would have been real confusing for Netflix people that are wondering, like, is that the character from that showed up at the end for two minutes of Zack Snyder's Justice League? If I even <laughs> saw that, I didn't. Is that the yeah. guy? Hold on. Is this the guy from Supergirl? Is this connected to the CW Supergirl show? But I definitely like, know that there are some people who were disappointed that it was going to be completely standalone. And I just feel like it would have. I, I don't know how you. I don't know. Expect I, any different at this point from something no, like Sandman. It's very silly. Uh, uh, Apollo, uh, do you feel like people should check out the show? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I have a tendency to feel like fans of the series uh, likely in part embrace the series because of its um, ability to uh, change and adapt and continue to be relevant um, not just the text itself, but how, um, the characters and the story are, you know, I mean, Morpheus appears in, you know, multiple ways throughout the series. And there's something about that uh, appreciation of that, um, of that evolution of the character or that changing of the character that makes me feel like, yeah, it'd be okay to see the story change as well. I just, I just felt really open to it in a way that I've not with other pieces of text and, and maybe, maybe other folks feel that way as well. Um, so uh, yeah, I absolutely think that, that if, if you loved the series for what it was that it in print, that, um, it's certainly worth giving a shot, um, on the screen itself. Um, and then I think, you know, there's just so much, I, I have so much trust in, uh, Gaiman, his hand in the production of the the pieces that we've seen so far in, in Good Omens, and um, I know not everyone feels this way about American Gods, but I I, I really loved what they did with American Gods, and um, 
so in a lot of ways, I feel like um, I have a lot of trust in, in, in his care for the creation and the reinterpretation of his creations. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally worth it. I think it's totally worth uh I mean, I would say one of the it. I mean, one of the values of it is that it has you know, Gaiman has revisited some of the things that were fucked up representationally in the comics that you know, at at the time they were out were like revelatory to me just to have that many queer people on the page even if there are ways in which certain characters played into some negative tropes. Um but like writing it now in a 2022 context like that's being addressed there's more queer characters greater diversity of characters and it's really to me like kind of one of the reasons that it it was kind of that it is sort of worth doing you know i would say having watched and we've all watched the first four episodes um my feeling towards the show overall is i like it i don't love it Uh, i will keep watching the series though um to me i think the biggest weakness is the cinematography is just really basic which is interesting because i think that there's the art direction work is often very good um but for a comic that is so strongly rooted in unique visuals sometimes ugly and messy ones there's plenty of like clearly somebody was rushing to print this issues of the comic but there is also like colleen doran issues of the comic and the visuals are not all I could have dreamed of, haha. But there's enough, there's enough cool visual things in there for me to have it still be worth my time. And certainly the performances are very good. The casting is very oh, good. Yeah, definitely some great performances. Um, I mean, just in terms of visual, I think like so much of it was just me. I've always wondered how are they going to just do like Morpheus himself? And I definitely give a lot of credit for Tom Sturridge. Um, definitely really enjoy his performance. Um, mm-hmm. especially the voice. Like that voice yes. is great. Like booming yet whispering. Like very just like chilling and cold. Like when you read that special font, it fits the voice. Like that voice mm. is the special font. But what's off to me about the visuals and it's not the hair. I can accept, like, it's not the full Robert Smith hair. But the hair, um, the hair is a good interpretation. Like, if yes, you it's want a good to, hair. If you want to have that hair in 2022 and have people think it looks cool and unique, but not like, what the fuck? That is the way to do the hair. It's the spirit of the hair without looking like ridiculous Yu-Gi-Oh cosplay hair. The, yes. I mean, and look, I knew dudes, I, there are guys who had that hair in the 80s, like, for real in the scene. Um, but... I, it would have felt a little bit over the, I don't know. I, I think they did a cool, I think they did a good job with the hair. I mean, I do think at a certain point also the visual, the visuals are kind of leaning on how good he looks in that role in, in ways that kind of let the, again, not great cinematography and lighting have it easy because it's just like, yep, his face is selling this and his hair is selling this and the way he's standing in the, you know, the field is, is, is his selling. face great morpheus so space good. Um, so good part this is going to be a weird take but part of what i don't like what or and this is really comparing it to the design of the character in the comic that i think doesn't work is very similar to a problem i had with the moon knight costume mm. in moon knight which is in both cases both like the moon knight costume especially the mr knight suit variation and morpheus 
in the comic. It's not just that they are pale or white color. It is that they are negative space. They are this mm. unimpeachable, like they like the world exists around them. Like they are mm. negative, like they are emblematic of negative space and how that is used artistically is such a big part of just them existing in the comics. And I don't feel that live action, they figured out how to recreate that sense of like white as otherworldly, ne- like existing as a shape of a hole in the world rather than existing within reality. Like that's an effect that I don't think has been effectively translated from page to screen yet. Yes. I, I definitely am there with you. And so with that, dear listeners, uh, we are about to go into full spoilers ahead mode. Um, we've only seen the first four episodes. I don't binge watch stuff. Uh, I find it to be an unappetizing way to enjoy my food, as it were. Um, but we definitely made it through the first four episodes. And so go and check those out. And then if you're interested in getting our thoughts, come right back and listen to the conversation. Okay, we're back. You know what? Having just gone through a little bit of negative stuff in my conversation with with Ben right now, um, Apollo, like, was there something like what was the thing that stood out to you most from watching this that you feel like was really successful in this show? Well, I mean, I think I have to agree on the on the casting portion. I really feel like um, I, I don't know how it could have been cast any better. Um, I yeah, I mean, it, it is such a great uh, cast. It really is. I mean, and all the way through, I, I think it's the only. The only thing that uh, was a little bit distracting for me was uh, Matthew's voice because I, I can just see Patton Oswalt saying those things. And yeah, so it's like he's, I, I'm with you there. Like yeah. he's he's I love Patton Oswalt. One of my fa- absolute favorite stand up comedians. He's too ubiquitous. He's yeah. voice mm. he's voiced too many characters in comic book things. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. But but I think all of the others are 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 fantastic. I, th- I think they really, I think they captured uh, at, at least in the in the so in the first episode for me the feeling that I got in the comics about the house um, about Burgess's house. Yeah, um, really came through that that sort of um, I don't know that sort of occult um, uh, you know old home it's a gothic, feeling, it's a gothic, gothic yeah. horror home yeah yeah, yeah. it was oh, really charles was dance yeah. Ooh, love charles charles dance was amazing perfect casting just the right kind of absolutely evil piece of shit upper crust <laughs> exactly great Violent, roderick burgess right under the surface and a really cool take on his on his son um in what i think could have been a very thankless role in a lot of ways too and yeah. god just that image like dream like tom sturridge in the sphericals in the glass sphere entrapped in the circle oh what a just like a haunting image so well translated from the the comic i mean i've it they got me so tense and i was so sad when the when when alex shoots the burr i mean i know he's you know but like oh my heart the most for me the the image that stands out the most so, so when i think back on my first experience with that first issue in my head is very clearly the scene that they translated uh, into the show, which is the the title page, the full page title page uh, of of Sleep of the Just, the, the first episode, which is that sort of top down view of Morpheus inside uh, the ring itself when he's just been captured and his cape is sort of spread out around him. He's holding the ruby in 
the rubies on the ground. He's holding the sand. He's got his helm on. That image was almost one for one translated over into the show. And, and I was just like, I almost shed a tear because for me, that is, that symbolizes the, the whole beginning of this arc and, mm. and that they so faithfully translated that onto the screen. It just felt, I don't know. It felt like they were talking to me in that moment, right? Like we're going to give you something that you can appreciate and that you can love because you know what this image means. You know, you know, mm. you saw this image in 1989 when it came out and um, yeah, I, I really, I loved it. I appreciated that. I'm, I'm actually looking at the image now in the book right now in front of me and it's just it's a fantastic image. There were definite moments where even when the line wasn't said and was only from an ad, just seeing that ad, like uh, Morris, I could just hear it and feel it in my head. Just that advertisement for it. I'll show you horrors and a handful of dust. Yeah. <laughs> that just to this day gives me chills. Mm. I, you know, I thought the design for the glass sphere, for example, was really beautiful. The whole mm-hmm. way that room was done up. Um, and and I think that the show has done a good job with the horror aspect. I I feel like sometimes I forget that Sandman is a horror comic because so many of the things that I liked the most about it when I was a younger person weren't the horror aspects of the story at all. Um, but it is at its heart a horror comic. It's not at its heart a Shakespeare comic. Do you know what I mean? Well, um, I mean, it is also that, but I... Oh, yeah. I I think the show really does a good job with the horror. Um, I, I mean, know, David Thewlis yeah. when David he's Thewlis, in the oh my god, David Thewlis when he's in the car with the psychologist from Ted Lasso, like yeah. even oh, without she is. supernaturalness oh, wow. was just like scary. Like just he's a tremendous so actor. He is a tremendous actor. He was so fucking good in Wonder Woman. He's just he's just great. Oh yeah, like I, I, I really appreciate him. I like I again four episodes in and. Maybe this is just knowing that what's coming is one of the most horrific comics I've ever read still to this day. Yeah. Like one of the most disturbing yes. comics I've put the page and knowing that like it's coming. Um, but he is just so good. Like he is even in these four episodes, he is terrifying as John D. Though yeah. fuck it, I knew this was coming. I was still seeing like the articles. It was like the surprising connection between Sandman and Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. Because they yeah. both have the goddamn Dreamstone. Mm. Get fucked, superhero movie clickbait <laughs> articles. Oh my god, the freaking... I don't even know. That's just not how to talk about the show, you know what I mean? But that's how, that's the only way they know how to talk about television anymore, right? Um, speaking of horror, Boyd Holbrook as yeah. the Corinthian. Fabulous performance. And I think they did a nice subtle job with the eye teeth. Yes, they didn't like go too like i feel like it could have ended up being like they were like chitter chattery teeth like it could have spilled over into like a little silly um it's definitely interesting their change to make the corinthian a little more of a uniting through line antagonist for this first season it seems like where you know in the comic he was just a nightmare that took advantage of the opportunity dreams absence provided and needed to just be hunted down because he's a fucked up nightmare serial killer. And in the show they're using, they're really using him as a real through line to connect the Burges and John D 
And it's all more of a deliberate plan that he's hatching. And it really, you know, it seems like it's, again, what we were talking about, giving that episodic structure of the comics a more seasonal structure. Yeah, I mean, it's the biggest change. The big, they're at least the most notable change from the books is that, you know, we don't, I think in the books, we don't see the Corinthian until much, much 10, 10 or 11, <clears throat> I think issue 10 or 11. So I appreciate the, the way that they're using the Corinthian to help sort of move things along and drive that narrative and be that, that through line. Like you said, yeah. it is funny. My, my, I gave these, I gave these comics to my sister who's 15 years younger than me. Um, when she turned 15 and she texted me last Perfect. night, she texted me last night and said, uh, I, I uh, the Corinthian is just as horrifying now as he was when you gave me the books the first time, which was just yes. really great. It's really great that it, it didn't, that he endures in that way. Yeah. It, I mean, I feel like that was the first thing that and the serial killer convention were like the two scary things that just really lived in my mind the most. Do we know, are they trying to do the full series in one season? No, it's the first two. Uh, the first season covers the first two volumes. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. It was really interesting to me also to see how they're sort of slowly unrolling the uh, universe when world building aspects of it. Like, I think we find out about the specific, the concept of him being endless, and then the, the names of not even all, but just some of the other endless, like near the end of episode three, through the mouth of Joanna Constantine. Um, yes, which I, I, I well, how do we feel about Joanna Constantine? Because I, I really like Jenna Coleman. I thought she was delightful. I I loved uh, the grittiness of John in the comics. There was something about his struggle and his reluctance to be who he is and the job that he has to do. Um, I think that really lent lent itself um, to this. And and what we're getting is we're getting um, Joanna, which is his ancestor, as a replacement for him. Yeah, um, and she's very she's very clean. Uh, clean cut, um, very together, very excited about the job that she does, she does and, um, and the role that she has to play, which is exactly how she was in, in the books, um, as well. Hmm. Um, so I sort of, I, I feel like I'm missing that grittiness. I would have loved to have seen a gritty, uh, Joanna Constantine. Um, I, I what surprised me about her was cause I went into being like, oh, okay. You can't quite use John Constantine. You're trying to have it be more standalone, not have like big recognizable dc characters especially ones who have supposedly their own jj abrams shows upcoming um <laughs> but i was still so it's like okay this is our character that's fulfilling the same role gonna be very similar but i was then surprised by how much it was still very much comics accurate john constantine backstory to the point where it is still the astrid drag to hell flashback like origin yeah. And like has the same love interests as comics John Constantine. Like we got uh, the Kit mm -hmm. Ryan name drop, which is yeah. a real deep cut for all but like, unless you're a big deep Hellblazer fan. I mean, I only realized they were doing the John Constantine comics relationships when they mentioned somebody called Oliver, because that's like from the recent series for Constantine. Yeah, it's, it's complicated because... I was excited to have them do Joanna instead of John because, like, let's have there be more female characters in this. Um, obviously, really glad and important that she's still bisexual, that the character of Constantine in this series is still bisexual. Not surprised to see that in the name of representation, they're not going to have her be equally scummy and self-loathing. Um, and, but it's not like she's this idolized person. Like, she absolutely 
did run out on her girlfriend and leave her with an incredibly dangerous time bomb practically under her head. And then then her girlfriend dies tragically. It is totally her fault. Yeah, like a character that I not not as scummy as the John Constantine we know, but I definitely got that there was that very familiar self-loathing, just that mm -hmm. this version of the character might be a little better at hiding it. But I I was definitely seeing a lot of that Constantine self-loathing. One of the things that people are really interested in hearing us talk about are the ways that the show has changed the way representation and diversity of different, um, I mean, I think particularly with queer characters um, between the show and the comic series itself. And, you know, one of the things I've said is that we won't really fully be able to answer that question until the end of the series because there's so many people we haven't met yet. I, I mean, the fact that they're cast a non-binary actor as Desire, and Desire was the first, you know, non-Teresius from the Odyssey, like non-binary character that I think most of us encountered in fiction as younger people. Without you know? a doubt. I mean, unless you, unless you want to talk about like Mystique in that light or something like that. Like, so just even understand the importance of that, you know, to have more, there's more LGBTQ, LGBTQ characters in this now, even it seems than the original. And, you know, one of my listeners was asking like, well, what about the really high body count of queer characters in the comic books? And it's like, there's a high body count of literally everybody in the comic books. I, I didn't leave, yeah. I didn't leave it at the time feeling like we were particularly targeted, which is not to say that there aren't fucked up things like having the trans woman character die because of gender essentialism. It's the sort of thing where it's clear, like he's tried to make the opposite statement, but it, it comes out all wrong. Um, and I know that deliberately in doing the series, he's revisiting that stuff to have it not be fucked up anymore. Um, but like within the context, like the, the, the comics had a greater diversity of kinds of queer people in them than like anything else we really, you're going to see like certainly in comics and in, and in, in many other, you know, accessible medium to people. You weren't so. finding many more comics more queer than this, unless no. you're reading the invisibles. Well, this is predates that, you know? So most of it predates it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I mean, it is still as being done by like a straight guy, right? But, you know, I, I think that the show is being thoughtful about that and um, using it as an opportunity to correct some things that weren't done quite right before. And it just always felt to me that the original series intent was to do right, even when it doesn't always do right. So here we have Yeah, it. and there's like some, again, like... uh Vivian Achimapong as Lucian, who's again, she's everything so I ever imagined the characters being. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is that is Lucian. Yeah. Like, she's really like, wonderful. That is the voice. That is the demeanor. That is the that is like the air of dignified loyalty that is the character. And I recognized it immediately. Like I didn't spend time poring over the casting in advance, but the second she's on screen, you're like, oh, that's Lucian. No. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, as soon as you see like the the glasses, that poise, the way she like stands and carries herself, like the body language is Lucian. She's also she's like a, she's very tired and trying to maintain that she's not, which I think like is an important part of that performance, you know? Yeah. And brings the balance. I think that the the balance to the emotion, right? I mean, the, this I think this is one of the challenges that I'm that I'm struggling with with uh, with Tom Sturge's performances. My my memory of an uh, internalization of Morpheus is uh, one of sort of emotionless stoicism 
without, uh, uh, with the exception of these few moments of high passion where, where he gets extremely angry or his jealous jealousy comes to the surface in some ways. Um, I, I often felt like he was above the emotion, detached from the emotion in his, you know, eternalness. Um, and that Lucien always brought that emotion to it. Um, and, and mm. Tom is emoting a little bit more. And I think it's necessary because I don't know that it translates the, it, I, it feels I agree. just pretty boring, right? So he's, he yeah. has to, he has to emote, I think, in order to make it interesting, um, on the screen. Um, but, I, but it hasn't reduced the balance that, uh, Lucien brings to the character you know, in that the the last scene where he re- the last scene I think in the first episode where he returns home, or maybe it's the second episode where he returns home, mm-hmm. um, and she runs to him and cradles it. Like I, I sh- literally first shed episode. a tear. It was the emotion mm-hmm. that I was waiting for, waiting to that little bit of a release that I needed. Um, and I think I think she handled it absolutely beautifully. Um, I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that performance throughout the rest of the series as well. I, you know, I'm so excited with Gwendolyn Christie because I have not gotten to see oh, her yes. perform in anything other than Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. And so it's so edifying to see her get to do something completely different um, because I, you know, you worry when you have a, a, an actor with a very unique look who gives a very, a very iconic kind of performance and you really worry about them getting typecast. And uh, she's got to do something completely different in this and she carries it off so well. And there's just, a, it's a completely different performance than what you've seen before. With or, her? I've seen before. And Lucifer and her take on Lucifer, none of that like tripped me up or had me even like thinking or remembering about like Lucifer, the TV show. Oh, well, that showed, what, I don't, well, that doesn't it, count. No, it's so different. But what tripped <laughs> me up a little bit was when they said like Mazikeen, and my brain was expecting the Mazikeen from Lucifer, the show. And then it was, and then like that was, it was Mazikeen that made my brain have to go like, hold on, wait, nope, stop. Okay recalibrate yep nope i'm on the same i'm on the right path now okay keep going like, yeah i was that's I, not they, a cr- that's not she a, was like she was a little a bit note less of my go- brain she is le- mazikeen is less gory on this than she is in the comics and in the comics she has this she talks like her body is half decayed and having read it that those scenes just recently it felt like it was the kind of thing that if you took it from the page even on the page it felt like it could have sounded a bit ableist frankly and so i was glad to hear the character not speaking in a in as mannered a way i Um, love the moment when like just instantaneous uh lucifer switches from the all-white outfit to the all-black outfit the costumes are delicious the costumes are really good yeah i just I, i just don't know why the cinematography is so bland and you know, a friend of mine was, who's, you know, another a big film buff was saying, she's like, I think they're just trying to be cheap. And it's like, how, it just is so wrong for that to be what you're going to play cheap on. And yet still kind of feels very believable for television. I know. Because it, when you're looking at the visuals and when the visuals really work, it's these actors doing, it's excellent casting with actors doing amazing work with their faces and bodies and really strong costumes and some really good prop design at times. Like for example, the helm the helm is perfect. Yeah, it's beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> I thought right? hell had a lot of interesting designs, like the mm-hmm. people having to carry their own fire, the people like embedded into the rock and like the gates and the trees. Like I thought that I thought hell was the most interestingly designed of the locations we got to see. Yeah. And the most interesting yeah. presented. 
Um, what did you think of the transformation battle? Because I know that that's probably my favorite moment of the whole comic series and one that's stuck with me so much since mm. uh, I read it. So I was really curious to hear what people thought about that scene in particular. Uh, I was disappointed in it. <laughs> I, I I felt like um, uh, this is I think this is the one piece where I felt the battle was um, in my own imagination and my own interpretation of the print of the books in print more expansive than what we saw. Um, and, and maybe it's just, maybe it's just the visuals that they chose. Um, it just didn't feel, um, the, the gravity wasn't the, the gravity of the situation didn't feel like it was translated well to the, mm. to the performance of the, of the game mm. for some reason to me. No. Again, it has been a while since I read the comic, and I don't remember this being in the comic, but I might be wrong, but I don't remember Matthew giving Morpheus a pep talk like he's in a boxing movie. Yeah, I don't think he did. <laughs> don't think he did. Yeah, yeah the, and, and, with that, and with Patton Oswalt's voice, that very much was like... It had that tone to it, absolutely. Yeah, like that's the thing. There's implying like, oh, it's Matthew. He was like a bad dude, and then he died and turned into a rave. I'm like, I can't believe this man was anything other than stand-up comedian Patton Oswalt before he got <laughs> turned into this raven. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh my god. Mm. Um. Yeah. I I felt like that battle has always been something with a really high concept to it that. I'm not sure that I could give a specific feedback on how to make it work better and make it work better, I guess is what is the thing. But um, I guess also not my job. They didn't hire me, um, <laughs> you know, but I, they could have done more at the end with hope because I feel like what we missed from the comics was like that last beat of explanation of why that yeah. I think is actually kind of necessary to still make it clear that like, because the only reason hell is hell is because people have hope yeah. for not being there. Yeah, um, I, I did like that moment at the end. Like, what power does hell have without the dream of heaven? Mm-hmm. And you need that, you know? Um, so it's kind of a, a questionable piece there. I um, I loved his interaction with Nada, and I want to give a shout-out for yes. a small role. Ernest Kingsley Jr., who plays the version of Sandman that Nada sees when they walk by, because this is important for folks who might not know. Like, in the comics... Dream looks like whatever kind of person it is you are, except for a particularly haunting version of it, um, often with white skin and black hair, but not even necessarily. Like when the god of cats sees him, he looks like a, a white cat, for example. Um, so, uh, so Nada is an African woman during a time where it's prehistoric, so she's never met anybody who wasn't African. So he's also African. So they, so they cast another actor to do that. And talk about a challenging bit. You have like a few moments to pretend to be an actor pretending to be a different character. And this guy nailed it. Like the well, facial expressions were dead on. Talk I, about I was impressed. A challenge. Impressed. You not only yeah. have a few moments to be this other character, you have to be this other character when he's expressing his most unlikable traits. Yeah. Like you have yes, to express yes. this character at his worst. Yeah. And I, yeah. I love that moment. Because again, that's so important to the series. I was waiting for like, when are they going to start getting into a how he appears different to uh, who depending on who sees him, mm -hmm. and b like are you like 
one of the, the his defining character traits. Um, how what a terrible, terrible boyfriend and ex boyfriend Morpheus <laughs> is, and yeah. like, and on top of it, like the fact that nobody is nobody explains. Oh, this is just how she sees him. Like he has to make it to the audience. The audience has to be able to tell you, like, oh, this is the same person. Yes, there so, there can't be hand holding. Like you so, have yeah. to just again, like, for there needs to be something and this is something that i think four episodes in i think they've maybe aired a little bit on the side of not doing this but overall i think they've mostly achieved a pretty good balance there needs to be something a little dreamlike about this series mm. you know you're right they don't have a ton of dream it i that moment being unexplained and yet being very very clear because of how it's done it, you're right there isn't a ton of other dreamlike stuff that we've seen quite yet yeah when he moves through the dreams to gather the materials for the three uh, i love that that's that one of my favorite sequences fantastic that was so well done yeah absolutely and, and i want to see more of that i want to see more of that of him moving through moving through those dreams that um, of course mm-hmm. we'll see that as we as we move on through the series there is that there's that moment I think that was beautifully translated as well that I felt was very true to the text where he's sitting at the end of the pier and waiting to sort of go into the dreaming. Um, there's a panel in the book that, that has him sitting there about to do that. And that, that felt, um, I think without probably could have felt a little better without Patton Oswald encouraging him or yeah. trying to discourage. Oh no, it wasn't that it was, a uh, Lucienne that was, was trying to convince yes. him not to go. Um, I think in the, in the book he's on his own and sort of trying to make that up. So I guess the, the narration was important, um, to, to encourage think, that. I think one of the problems with it being Patton Oswald specifically is that him as a main character's flying animal sidekick is just straight up fucking his role from happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh God! Yeah. Thanks, I'm, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks, Ben. That was anyway. Um, um, I I have to say that I absolutely <laughs> adore Cain and Abel, um, and mm. how how those have been how those have been translated. Um, I oh that. my God! Like I didn't even remember like a Gregory sacrifice in the book. Like I remembered Goldie, but mm-hmm. I didn't remember like feeling much about like Gregory. This show, there's like he absorbs Gregory. And I just ran over and I scooped up my cat and I just like gave him the biggest hug. I mean, I always, it's, I have a, I struggle. My reaction to moments like that are always that I feel like it's cheap because it's cheap to make me feel that way because it's so fucking easy. But it's also, I mean, it's, I don't know how you avoid doing that. Really. I consume stories to feel things because otherwise I'm just dead inside. So well, I'm here for the emotions, <laughs> cheap or not. I guess. I don't know. I just have a hard time with animal self-sacrifice. It's like. But the, I, I, you know, it is, it is, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Goldie is adorable. You know, I, I, I thought those actors did a really great job. And it's interesting that they're the space that doesn't crumble, right? Because that story is like so old yeah. and resilient yeah. and apparently created by G slash D and therefore um, has a durability that some of the other myths in the dreamland don't. Um, which is why they're still there. I think. What are you? What are your thoughts on the this visualization of the dreamland? I, I felt a little. It, there is it, this the 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 preview in the beginning when when we are introduced to the dreaming. Um, it feels I, so incredibly polished. It almost feels like a, mm-hmm. a Lord of the Rings elf. Yep. Elven. Yep. It's soft CGI. A little, 
yeah, I think it leans a little too into the classic like fantasy book, like storybook feel. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel the dreaming in the house is always something a little indescribable. Yeah. Like there's just something I feel like a little once upon a time yeah. about the dreaming in the show. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, it feels really polished. And I always imagined the dreaming a little darker than that, except for some corners where things were bright, like Fiddler's Green or something. Right. And it felt like this was all bright and I don't know, almost as guardian. Right. In this- yeah. It didn't feel very imaginative. The door, like the gates I thought were really beautiful. They took the time to be very specific with them. You know, they have little carvings of Sandman in those gates. But then the overall, the overall um, design was just not very imaginative. Well, soon, presumably, we'll get Marv Pumpkinhead, and then I want to know where he was on January sixth. <laughs> oh, oh! I, I will say that's more the Sandman expanded universe where they got into some of the uh, dodgier aspects with Marv Pumpkinhead. I was not aware of this. There's some like anti-immigration theme like stuff that they have Marv Pumpkinhead do in some of like the dreaming comics like that oh, they've wow. done in the last few years. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Not so much in the classic stuff where he's just grumpy. And yeah. like what if he was real, real grumpy? I don't like when shows or anything really decides that they're gonna locate racism and bigotry in the character who is most coded as like working class. Um it's not to say that there aren't working class people with those opinions, but it's to say that the, generally speaking, wealthy people who are creating this popular culture would prefer to locate all the bigotry in the lower classes so they don't have to feel like it's reflective of them. And it's fucking cheap and it's wrong. So there's a listener question that kind of connects back to one of my main points. This is from a noted scholar of industrial music and therefore absolutely person with expertise adjacent to the series S. Alexander Reed um, asks, is it possible for an adaptation to be too authorized and too faithful? Relatedly, is a horror comic by a no-name punk in the 1980s really the same thing as a prestige series in 2022 presented by the most, and this is all cap, the most caps, the most important fantasy tale ever by unimpeachable God storyteller? And, you know, I mean, my, my, my thing here is that if people expect the Sandman TV series to be impactful in the way that the comics were, that's not possible because the comics changed what people thought the genre could do. And it is just not a, in, in 2022 prestige television land, like a Netflix show is not going to redefine television, what television means for a huge percentage of the audience. Yeah, and so like, there's just two different, completely different things, you know? I like, I personally, I can't go into it expecting the same impact. Like, like I said, like the Sam and the comic completely changed the course of my life. It inspired me in a way nothing quite has before or since. Uh, I can't have the same reaction to the show. If only because like when I read the comic, I was 19 and the world was ahead of me and I was full of dreams and energy and now I'm 32 and tired and have deadlines. But no, I mean, yeah, like what is it saying about the medium it's in? It's why I think, you know, to use another recent example, uh, I think it's why The Boys as a superhero comic in the 2000s had, um, had really nothing to say 
and why The Boys as a superhero, you know, prestige TV show in the 2020s has a lot to say. I mean, again, like, I don't think it can never be one to one, like we were saying, like, it's different time, different medium. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like you could do a whole indie movie just about like time and experiencing the same story in different ways at different points in your life. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there could never be another one of this. Yeah, and not and not just at points in your life, but I think at the pace as well, right? I mean, we're Mm. we're talking about I don't know how many years Sandman it took Gaiman to get through the seventy five issues or seventy two issues or whatever it was. It was years. So jealous of when runs could be that long. I know. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I, started reading to- it, I started reading the series when I was 16, right? And and um, at, at 16, going from being a junior in high school to finishing it off when I was, you know, in my early 20s, uh, or I guess, yeah, I guess early 20s, it just felt like, or maybe it was late teens, just before early 20s. I can't remember how many years it ran. What a world of change happens in mm-hmm. one life in that moment and how how many different ways does the first um, issue or the 10th issue or the 20th issue um uh how many different ways can you relate to those things at different points in your life and, and especially at that point in your life where every year is something radically different right it, it, you're in in love and out of love and in jobs and out of jobs and in a way that um feels like a really rapid pace and this is a sort of stabilizing world that you can return to over multiple years and you just can't really do that with the, with the Netflix series. And I can't imagine expecting it to, to do that or to carry that sort of weight. Is there anything that you think the series had has adapted too, faith, too faithfully though? Not yet. I, don't, I haven't come across anything that feels too faithful. Only yet. in that for his own health, I'm worried what Tom Sturridge might be doing to maintain those cheekbones. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, there was a level of articulated muscle when you have this back where I was like, please tell me you're eating because, well, he's definitely 100% fucking dehydrated when they shot that. So I definitely consider the standards that superhero media are telling actors and actresses that their bodies have to maintain are a workplace hazard. And I mean, cool again, the union did something about it, frankly. We're first way, like we're still only like less than halfway through the season, like, when I think about some adaptations that have been like too faithful, I think the big issue that or like the common issue that usually comes to mind is, oh, they haven't made the changes they've needed to make the pacing or the plot development work with this new medium. And we've kind mm-hmm. of just, and I feel like we've discussed like, oh, but will they have? So I feel like it might be, again, like it might have been too loyal, too faithful if it was, if it was episodic to the point of needing to be like Star Trek, the original series, like you were saying, Alana. So yeah. I think that most common adapted to faithfully pitfall has been avoided. Like it seems like they are conscientious about like, how do we make this story a story that is told over a season of television and not just a straight adaptation of a series of loosely re- of like monthly released comic book issues. Yeah. And I, I like that they've, they haven't moved sequentially a ton of stuff around, but I like that they've moved sequentially things around a little bit because it points to me, to me, it points that they are thinking about it strategically rather than just being loyalists to it. Totally. I, I have a, a bit of a fun question for us. Um, do, is the show adequately goth? 
I, as we would hold those definitions to be in our current year and time. Perhaps I definitely think that Tom, Tom Sturridge and all the vibe he brings, like, again, I'm imagining him in the, the scenes in the ruined library. That's pretty fucking goth. Mm-hmm. I know. What's standing out to me is not goth is Boyd Holbrook in the Corinthian, but you don't get Boyd Holbrook to be goth. That's just not a goth character, the Corinthian, as creepy as he is. Hmm. Um, he had a very 80s yuppie veneer yeah. in the comics. Like, that's what he was designed to be, to be like that yes. sleek and clean. Boyd Holbrook, like, God, Boyd Holbrook feels almost so obvious to me that I almost wonder if he even had to audition or if they just like as soon as someone said his name for the corinthian they were just like oh fuck yeah let's just do that i actually know nothing about him well he probably the most recognizable stuff that you might recognize him is uh he was in narcos and he was donald pierce in logan of donald pierce but like so like but like what's his shtick what made that be an obvious casting oh just that very like vaguely texan white elitist Yet, like, charming, yet clearly unhinged energy. Yep, there you go. Apollo, do you feel that this series is adequately goth? Not yet. I mean, I think it's there. I think it's, it's the, the promise is there. I think we're, after episode four, we're heading into territory where we can really, I mean, maybe after this, maybe after this first storyline, oh. see if we can get some more of that with Dr. John Lee. But uh, I think once we, once we finish John Lee's, John D's story, I think we, Open up a world that where uh, can adequately goth. Okay, I want to. It's a good um, point. I want to amend my answer because I think I've been mostly satisfied, especially with the stuff revolving around Morpheus. I've been and uh, Joanna Constantine. I've been kind of satisfied with the visual gothiness. Where I think the show could be a lot gothier is the music. Okay, I was about to go there. A, co- a couple things. I mean, one. I think the show isn't adequately gothic in the sense that it, the lighting is just too flat and boring and the cinematography is, like I've said, like is not creative enough, which is just a bizarre thing for a show like this. But, um, but yeah, the music and soundtrack, I associate Sandman with the artist that introduced me to. I mean, I am like the world's biggest fucking Iggy Pop fan and I first was aware of his stuff because Sister Midnight is what's playing in a very pivotal scene that I don't want to spoiler to people, but like, you know, in a strip club that happens later. And I was just so haunted by the lyrics from the Iggy Pop song before I even actually got to hear it played from how it's used in the comics. Um, and it's inter- it introduced so much music to me and the, the show has the budget for it. I mean, I, I hope that they get to use that song in the right scene later, in fact. But um, even if they're not going to even if you're not, I'm not asking for it to be like a jukebox musical. That would be inappropriate as well. But you, they do have the the show does have a score. The score is not particularly doing anything for me, and they it's should be spending some no, yeah. nothing that's standing out is memorable. Mm-mm. Definitely no songs that I felt were heightening the atmosphere. Like it's yeah. all again. Like I'm trying to. It was functional, not memorable the score so far yeah i mean yeah. it feels i wonder if this if the person who did the score for this isn't the same person who did the score for american gods because it's giving a very american gods vibe oh interesting yeah 
Yeah, no, the score is doing nothing for me. Oh, I got to talk to my brother and see what he th- he like does scores. I'm like gonna see what he thinks about it, but it doesn't really do anything for me. And like, I just I, I want them to use music in a smarter way. There's um, I mean, there's a lot. There's like a there's always goth new goth artists making new goth music right now. So if if people are like, well, we don't want this to be locked into a particular point in time or be retro. Well, one. Calling Sister Midnight was retro when he used it in this comic. But two, um, there's always new goth music coming out and there's new goth kinds of sounds and artists and you they could be enriching the story with those if they wanted to keep it. I mean, like Yellow Jackets invented a new fictional 90s riot girl punk band just for a, like a cool, original, yet authentic sounding opening song. Like... There's mm-hmm. money to make new, cool, atmospheric, yet even still orchestral goth rock for this. Um, I could use scenes that are just vibes. Like, just give me Morpheus going through wondrous, mind-bending visuals while super atmospheric, like, goth rock sounds are playing. Like, just give me more vibes. Yes, I would like more goth vibes. Uh, there, there's still time. There's still time. Is there anything that um, you guys are really, really hoping that you get to see adapted in some way in this, even if it's not this season? I think, look, I mean, I know it's coming and look, this is very obvious for my super non-binary ass. Um, I cannot wait to see Mason Alexander Park as Desire. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited for canonical non-binary Desire um, played by a non-binary actor. Um, I am just like, Again, as someone who went back, like when they started figuring out, um, I was like non-binary. I went flipped through my old Sandman comics, like reread scenes of Desire. Like there has always been something very, I was going to say like attractive about the character, but that's the point there, Desire. But yeah. to see that gender queer aspect of the character so in its entirety and like textually embraced, I'm really excited for. I don't know that there's any particular piece that i'm looking forward to i think i'm just i'm i'm really uh sort of opening myself up to just sitting back and embracing every piece of it as it comes and and the, how each piece is interpreted um i've already seen the story change just a little bit in a couple of different places and so uh, i don't know that's an, that's enjoyable in itself for me you know i really don't want to come into anything with like a, a checklist of what i want to see because you know, sort of like the quote from Sandman I kicked us off with, the price of getting what you want is getting what you once wanted. But like, part of me is like, I do really want to see the strip club scenes from, I don't remember, I guess, I think it would probably be next season that that would come up. But, um, you know, to me, it was, it was one of the first places where I saw people talking with sex workers who were talking about their jobs as a job and not as this like crazy tragic fate that befell them. And that was really revolutionary having that in the comics too. And the art for that. It's Jill Thompson, I'm pretty sure. One of the, the greatest from Sandman for sure. And it, it would be nice to have that, that story continue as well. Um, so uh, is there anything that you both, either of you want us to hit up that we haven't hit up yet? You know, you know we really didn't talk about the character of... Um... Ethel Cripps. Mm-hmm. How did we find that character? Because, like, I like, you know, being this kind of magical art dealer who outsmarts the Corinthian, but also has this 
very complicated relationship with John D. Like, and I know she was there in the comics. And, and again, it's been a while and it feels like I don't remember her having such a big role. And it seems like she also exists to help further the new, you know, season long plot line connective tissue. That is all true. So, yeah. How, how, what did we think of her character and stuff? And uh, Jolie Richardson's performance. Because I definitely liked her performance. Yeah, I thought it was a good performance. And I think you described what, what how they're using her in the show very well. I um, I didn't remember her at all Like when they mentioned that as the character coming in. And I think it looks like it's a useful device. And it's a good performance, sure. Yeah, yeah I think so. Because I think she played a relatively small part. I, I just listened. I just did the Audible book. Um, cause if, uh, you know, I don't know if you'll listen to it or not. The, they, they no, did the first no, couple. I heard good things. Yeah. They did the first couple of volumes and, and this, you know, the, this whole piece with John D's fairly fresh in my mind. And I feel like, yeah, she did not have a, a huge piece, um, in the story. So, um, I think they've, they've certainly extended that to help move things along. I, th- I think her performance was great. I think that the, those final those moments with with um with John D were, were great when she goes to visit him it felt it, it felt uh it felt authentic to me in a way that I, I wasn't expecting yeah also great design work on the amulet of protection oh love that amulet they're gonna sell copies of I, yeah. I, it's so hard for me now like I have this lens on where I'm like oh that's what they're gonna sell in the collectibles so that will love I'm like yeah that's gonna be a collectible and they're gonna cool sell looking a ton of those demon eye ring necklace ooh into that amulet. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Apollo, anything we haven't hit up yet you'd like us to cover? There's only one Discord piece for me at the outset um, that maybe maybe y'all can help me and think mm-hmm. through this. Um, Roderick Burgess, in, in, at the outset of this, in, in the original story, didn't have a son who died who he wanted to bring back. It's very clear that he, he's seeking, I think it says very clearly in there at some point, that he's seeking... Um, fame and recognition he's in competition with alistair crowley for recognition in his being a magician and in this they they inserted that that in the plot point the wanting to bring his son back plot point just didn't it it felt um i don't know it felt unnecessary but maybe i'm not thinking about it in the right way maybe it was maybe it was necessary um, to create some connection with the audience. Um, no, I think you're right. It's not necessary. It, it is, I think it put, you know, it, it contributes to the idea of this being a specific time and place and also him being like the world's worst dad for yeah. how he's treating his other son. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if they were doing it to make him be more relatable, I don't see how that's particularly helpful. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the only thing that has sort of stood out to me is, is like I said, uh, as a Discord. I think the performance was incredible. I think we started off talking about Charles Dance's performance, and I think it was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah. Oh, he's just so good at being so terrifying and vile. Oh, yeah. Still got that Taiwan energy. Yep, yep, yep. I'm glad, actually, I should also say, I'm really glad the show didn't just fucking cast everybody from Game of Thrones because when they cast a couple, I think those might be the only actors who were in both 
Gwendolyn um, Christie and Charles Dance, I might be misremembering, but I think there, there was some internet buzz around like, oh, that if they have all the cast, I'm like, no. Well, I really feel like there was that period in Hollywood where a like almost anything had at least a few Game of Thrones actors, but specifically like really bad, like not very like particularly well produced like genre shows or movies would just get like as many Game of Thrones actors as they yeah. could to try to like seem legitimate would be like yeah. no we got the jorah guy like look we're totally legit <laughs> that's so true yeah i'm glad that the show didn't feel the need to do that because, yeah there was um, stuff like this play oh out. god like i don't know like the witch hunter's apprentice or something where it's like kit harrington shows up for like 10 minutes between where he had time to film between seasons and they put that shit in all the posters and trailers Mm-hmm. like i don't know it was just a th- i'm glad hollywood has just moved beyond game of thrones actors for cultural legitimacy <laughs> apollo where can our listeners keep up with you um I, actually i just plugged the two organizations that i sit on the board on because they do um really incredible work um climateaccess.org and um iob.org iob.org uh, both organizations are doing really good stuff out there in the world um and if you ever want to see how a small town operates come on down to our twice a month city council meeting and you can talk about potholes and um taking care of the community so ben lives in manhattan i live in brooklyn so we're like fascinating <laughs> <laughs> tell me more of your weird and exotic ways uh, here here so uh tell our listeners where can they keep up with your work ben so yeah, um, you can find uh, all my currently available work at uh, my website benconcomics.com. Uh, like I said, uh, Heavenly Blues is being re-released in bookstores um, August twenty third by uh, through Scout Comics. Uh, Renegade Rule is available online. Uh, definitely check that out. And uh, my first prose book, uh, L. Campbell Saves Their Saturday, will be coming out next year uh, from Scholastic. So if you like non-binary middle grade adventures keep an eye open for that and who amongst us doesn't and actually i'll also just say this about heavenly blues like i know that probably you know apollo being my guest on this show we might have some additional listeners this time who don't usually listen to the podcast who are political organizer types heavenly blues has got really cool politics and is doing some really cool shit with that so yeah it's a heist um, heist from heaven it's about Um, a group of dead thieves in hell who team up to pull the ultimate heist on heaven um Sandman and its views of mythology and whatnot definitely inspired one of the many influences that went into the book. Um, yeah, so hopefully a really fun comic, one I'm definitely proud of. So we'll hope people check out and enjoy. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And don't forget to plug your fabulous podcast on which I have guested multiple times. Yes, uh, that is Progressively Horrified, the Horror Review podcast that holds horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. We have some great episodes. Uh, definitely check it out, especially the ones where we had Alana on as a guest. Oh, I thank you. Yeah, I got to talk about Hellraiser twice, Nightmare on Elm Street. We got to talk about The Golem. And it sounds like I'll be back to talk about The Thing. I hope it's not yes. a spoiler. Yes. Oh, but, I am very excited to have you on for that. As am I. It is always a great time having you on. And so, yes, thank you for letting me join your wonderful show here tonight. Love a crossover. And as as for me, I, I'm on the internet a little bit too much still at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. And um, 
new episode of Graphic Policy Radio's side podcast, Deep Space Dive, will be coming to you soon, in which Sarah Daniel and I will discuss the Mirror Universe episodes of the show. So um, what else do I have coming up? I, I'll be interviewing some additional comics writers and artists, as per usual. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>